establishing connection to science night. Please stand by. Welcome back to another edition of the Science Night Podcast. My name is James, and with me, as always, is Steffi. Hey. And Jason. Hello. Tonight, we're doing something a little different. It has been one year since the rebirth of the Science Night Podcast. Some might even call it a new relaunch era, where little old James brought on other people who are talented and have an ability to speak on microphone <laughs> to make this podcast. So I want to talk about some of our favorite moments from the past year because we had a lot of them. And I'm going to start first. So when I started this podcast, it was just interviewing people and we had some great conversations, but we didn't really like talk about new science or anything like that. So the addition of this news segment was really uh, one of my favorite things about this relaunch era, especially when we talked about these little guys that live at the bottom of the ocean around the Philippines. Tonight, we have a White House roundup, medicinal mollusks, and pollen proliferation. Life can be funny sometimes. You know, one day you're just cruising the internet looking for science news for your up-and-coming science communication podcast of note, and you don't realize that destiny is waiting for you in the search results. And dear listener, I want to tell you that on one fateful day, the Science Night team answered the call of destiny. Let's look at the humble cone snail. These creatures use a variety of hunting methods with the common goal of incapacitating unwary fish with a naturally produced chemical agent and proceeding to eat it. So we're into a little bit of the weird science part of the Science Night podcast. These nine-inch snails tethered our imagination and like a slow-moving toxin worked their way into our hearts as we talked about them and the people that study them. They can just spew out venom into the water like a big cloudy haze and wait for their prey to wander through. Ambush and assess. To me, that's preferable. Like, I would much rather be wandering around and suddenly be like, oh, there's something that's making me feel weird. I'm just going to walk around in circles for a few minutes and sit down. All of a sudden you start smelling burning toast. It, it kind of just reminds me of college. <laughs> Eventually, we realized we needed to know more about these cone snails. So I sought out the author of the article we were reading, Bea Ramiro from the University of Copenhagen, and I just had to talk to her about cone snails and what brought her to want to learn more about them. She is a graduate student in the Department of Biomedical Sciences at the University of Copenhagen, and she is now our resident cone snail expert. Please welcome to the podcast, Bea Ramiro. Hi, thank you for inviting me here. We talked about kind of the coolest thing that we could have found at that time, these venomous sea snails. And boy, did we have a lot of fun with that. What unfolded was a conversation about a woman who traveled around the world and back again to learn more about the secrets of cone snail venom, about the thing that is locked within their very DNA that allows them to do something that could potentially be beneficial to humans. Yeah, I still work with cone snails and currently working with a specific group of compounds or peptides from the cone snails and looking at their activity at receptors. So that's what I'm currently doing right now. So we've moved out of the field and we're more into the lab. Is that correct? Yes. And after this conversation, the creative juices were flowing. So we went in and we designed the Nine Inch Snails line of merch that you can find at cyanite.com slash merch today. And it's taken the internet by storm, just as these cone snails have taken our imagination by storm. If you want to know more about these marvelous mollusks, go back and listen 
to the episodes that we highlighted in this vignette, and also check out Bea Ramiro's work at the Safavi Lab website, which we linked on those episodes. Nine-inch snails. Those shirts are amazing. They are. Is that the crop top? Yeah. Yeah, Stephanie and I were both, like, walking the floor in Mm nine-inch snail stuff at Gen Con, and several people talked about it, and we got it. We actually had a sale. Nice. I'm just, like, Google. I'm, like, searching through my 49 pages of notes. Oh, my God. Wow. That's your favorite thing about the last year. I know. And and I would have thought, looking back through the year and, like, the stories that we covered, that I would have used the word frog way more than snail in my notes. But, no. So much more snail. Yeah. You know, we made that we made that new uh, we made that new ad and you were talking about frogs because we had like three straight weeks of of frog stories. But then it just really pivoted to snails. They they really blew our hair back. (laughs) They got their own T-shirt. I mean, that's a thing. (laughs) Yeah, they did. They did get our own Mm T-shirt. Jason, you you uh, you brought something very important to this podcast, and that is your your endless supply of people who work in science and are willing to talk to you. So <laughs> that's a much more people, limited subset, you know. You know, it seems to be never ending. You just you're always uh, throwing in the Discord. Hey, like, I, here's this episode uh. I just recorded. <laughs> who are some of the people that you uh, you really enjoy talking to over the past year? Knowing that we enjoy talking to all of the guests, yes, of the course. Past year. I mean, I think I would be remiss if I didn't say that one of my favorite interviews was with Doctor Steffi Deem. What? You know, that was so much yeah. fun. Yeah. And that was it, a good get. It was a good get, yeah, because uh, look what it's turned into. This is a way better <laughs> collaboration than an interview ever could have been. And so um, I enjoyed that interview a lot, Steffi. I learned so much about your science. It was the first time I had ever heard the word tokamak. It was cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and now yeah. we talk about it like it's old, like my old friend. Just like we have one in the basement. Right. I, I, mean, I literally <laughs> have one in the basement. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, and you know, you know what I noticed listening, <laughs> listening to like the couple episodes we did before Steffi came on as a full time host. Um, we definitely became better science communicators at that moment, and I'm wondering if it's because uh, Steffi kind of lifted the waterline a little bit. Oh, for um, sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But the new segment, of vet, amazingly, it just become came like tighter and way more concise. Yeah, and it also uh, it opened up new avenues of science, right? I mean, James, you and I have a lot of overlap in our areas of expertise. You and Steffi have a lot more overlap in your areas of interest. And Steffi brings this dimension of science that neither one of us has any handle on. And so it's exciting to have new things to talk about and have some actual expert voice with it. It's cool. But, you know, enough about Dr. Deem. Let's talk about, like, some some good stuff here. I mean, we hear from her every week, right? <laughs> some good stuff. Anyway. <laughs> I, I just like learning about all the anatomy. I, I mean, I stick to things that aren't alive. And so you open like this whole corridor. I'm like, yeah, there's a snail outside. But I didn't know you could actually, you know, tap into that for medicine. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Now you do. Or for merchandise sales. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> Which can be used to purchase medication. And it's one big circle Jeez. of life. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> In addition to, uh, to Steffi Deem. I have a couple of others that I really enjoyed talking to, um, especially enjoyed talking to. The first of which, I really love talking to Barb Kaplan. Oh, yeah. She was great. She was fantastic. She was so much fun to listen to. And she took my kind of ridiculous questions that weren't really ridiculous, but were ridiculous to ask of someone doing the kinds of things that she's doing in her lab and ran with them. And I really appreciated her ability to yes and that stuff. Um, So she was a great conversation. Okay, so um, I mentioned to you earlier uh, before we we started recording that uh, I just spent a weekend in Colorado with a bunch of my friends from college, Mm -hmm. which was a wonderful weekend. And um, while we were sitting around having dinner one evening, I mentioned that we were going to be talking to you and uh, and I asked them what questions they might have for you. I mean, I just thought maybe somebody in that group might have a question. Okay. (laughs) And uh, and it turns out that my uh, college roommate, in fact, had a question because we were talking about your work with regard to tamping down the, uh, the immune response, which might be beneficial in the context of some autoimmune diseases, but also could be a problem um, right. if you're healthy and you're trying to avoid catching the flu. And my college roommate asked a question that 
seemed like reasonable at the time. <laughs> and so okay. now I'm going to turn around and I'm going to ask it of you. And that is, is it possible that say hypothetically, someone was ingesting cannabis, uh, inhaling quite a bit and mm -hmm. uh, sharing that paraphernalia quite a bit throughout uh, college when the immune system is maybe even at its ripest, <laughs> um, that it might be caused to create a really robust immune system that would cause you, even if you're using lots of, let's say, THC, hypothetically down the road, you might be able to buffer against that because you have a really hyper robust uh, right. System. What are your thoughts on that? Because uh, he asked me the question. And at the time I thought, you know, I see the logic behind the question. I don't know enough about how the immune system sort of evolves through a lifetime. Right. Maybe right. I should turn that around and ask of you. Uh, sure. So I think it's a very complicated question, to be honest. Yeah, and I, I don't know that I have the exact answer to it. One of the things that we've been finding lately in our work, which I think is really interesting and really needs to be explored more, is that you know, despite the fact that these compounds and these chemicals kind of have a reputation for being immune suppressive and anti-inflammatory, we have conditions under which sometimes we see the opposite effect, where it's maybe increasing some kind of endpoint that we're measuring the immune response, which is a little bit surprising. And uh, we don't quite understand why that's happening all the time. There could be a number of things that are involved with that. And um, one of those could be like, what is your quote state of your immunity? Like, where do you fall on right. this, on this balance, on the spectrum of your immune response? And I think that could really possibly dictate how these chemicals are acting in people. So I, I think at this point, I, I definitely don't have a clear answer for your friend. <laughs> I think there's a number of things that could go into boosting or not their mm -hmm. immunity. Uh, certainly sharing the paraphernalia, I'm sure it has also allowed the germs to be shared as well. So. Hey, I think that was the logic behind his question. Right. And so it yeah. sounds to me like, you know, you don't have a clear answer. No, you haven't been able to falsify that hypothesis. Data I, I that think, are interesting. Yeah, we do have some data that are interesting. And I really think that we just need more research, especially using human cells. We can get human cells from um, human volunteers, actually quite easily. The immune cells can be isolated from the blood very easily in the lab, and then we can do those studies in the lab. So I think we just need to know more and, you know, know something about, like, we can even order at this point uh, disease state cells. We could get some autoimmune disease, disease mm -hmm. state cells and, you know, maybe look at those um, and maybe compare those to, quote, healthy cells. You know, of course, the challenge with humans is that we've been exposed to all sorts of different things. So the state of one's immune system in response is going to be very different from the state of another. So I just think that we need more data, especially in human cells and under different conditions. I also really enjoyed talking to David Goldstein, mostly because I came away from it feeling a lot less cynical and a lot more hopeful than I have in a long time, even though he is just as cynical and just as hopeless as I am. But he really knows what he's talking about. And um, when he says, I trust him when he says things are looking better than maybe they were a year ago. I want to believe that because the guy knows what he's talking about. He's earned that trust and I've known him for so long. And so I'm wondering, how is it that you are able to be successful at running things like vaccination campaigns for COVID? And you did a, a marvelous job recently um, with a series of memes trying to get the general public to understand the importance of vaccinating. How can you overcome those sorts of real-time changes in the understanding that scientists have and therefore that public policymakers uh, are able to implement or use to implement new law or new guidelines or whatever it may be when the general public is already losing its trust in science because they're not used to things changing so rapidly? Great question. So I'll break it into two parts. Uh, start with the what we were do it on the vaccination campaign and what we do every time we go out there. There is uh, folks who work on disinformation who believe in like a head-on attack, right? You know, if it's Breitbart, we go after Breitbart. If it's uh, Fox, we go after Fox. I don't really believe in that because we're always going to be operating at a severe deficit to their sheer size. It's like playing whack-a-mole, right? It's like if David wanted to play whack-a-mole with Goliath. Okay, right. Right. I mean, it's just they're 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 massive entities backed by billions of dollars of wealth. We're just not going to be able to play at that level. 
On top of that, I don't find it to be effective. I think if somebody has told a story that has ensnared people, you will never get those people to release from it unless you can find a better story to tell. And I genuinely believe something that improves upon a story is when it is rooted in facts. Um, there is an authenticity to the truth that helps a story out. Um, but also it's incumbent upon the storyteller to find the emotional angle, to find you know the heroic angle that mm -hmm. the person can play, to find the antagonist who's gonna be against them, what the resolution is to th start thinking in those terms. So we think in those terms. And so we were like, if we are going to talk to rural white people who have refused to get vaccinated to this day, what can we do to make them trust us? What story can we tell to make them feel empowered? Mm -hmm. where, where can we lay out a case that they need to do this to continue as part of their identity, right? As Christian, as Trump supporter, you know, as, you know, pro-military, any of that, and take this action along with it. We are not looking ever to fundamentally shift who people are. We are looking to fundamentally shift a single action taken on a single day, um, which is infinitely more modest and as we have found to be achievable time mm -hmm. and time again. So tell us about the outcome here. Like, what did you find? What were you able to, to accomplish with this? So what we were able to accomplish is there was a Stanford study that came out um, a few weeks before we were in the field that found by promoting a Trump-based video with Trump basically telling people to get vaccinated, that they were able to achieve a spend of a dollar for ad spend equaled one new vaccination over the course of the campaign. Um, and they did this, you know, very rigorously at Stanford. They're not going to f*** us up. Um, and we beat them on all of the metrics that we were able to measure by a substantial amount. So the lesson for us was our model where we're worried first and foremost about engaging an audience and then later about the message or the action that we want them to take is an incredibly powerful one because it places your audience at the center. And, you know, you, you only need to look at Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, you know, some of the most you know, consumer centric guys, and their insane success, mm -hmm. that there's a power when you elevate the people whom you're talking to and look for how to basically gain permission to come into their lives and speak to them. So we were always trying to find what was funny for people, what was interesting for them. The last thing we ever wanted to do was to place ourselves in a position where we, where we were scolding them. And, you know, a ton of the messaging around the pandemic that came out of the past two years, I don't think any of it was intentionally scolding, but anytime you're saying to somebody, you are doing something that is hurtful, it's a scold. Mm -hmm. And there's no way to get around that. As opposed to telling someone, this is a great way for you to help yourself, your community, this is a way for you to help, you know, help everyone around you and yourself be healthier. You know, it's it's a totally different conversation um, to initiate and, and expand upon than what you're doing is bad. Stop it. Steffi, what were what were some of your favorite moments from the past year? Okay, some of my favorite interviews were Dr. Deviani Singh. Yes. Yep. Amazing hearing about the work that they're doing in climate science um, and, you know, talking about solutions, potential solutions to climate crisis and ways to make green energy work for individuals and corporations. And then also going into politics, too, and how scientists should be doing this more often and different ways that you as a scientist could be influencing local policy by writing to people and just kind of giving your opinions. And I think that is amazing. And I really love that conversation. 
So you bring up this time and sense of urgency, and I love it. I'm with you there on that. What do we need to start doing now to make the biggest impact? If, if someone were to come up to you and say, what policy do we need to write and enact it now to start jumping on this 2050 goal, what would you do? Personally, I would say the one thing that can really make a difference is a Just Transition Act. And there might be other environmentalists who are like, oh, we need a just a normal energy transition. But I say Just Transition because... Like I said, we don't want to leave those workers behind, especially when you look at Canada. Uh, you know, we have a lot of oil and gas workers and we, including coal workers in BC, and we want to transition them. You know, we have, we've seen the collapse of the textile industry in the US. We saw the collapse of the forestry industry in the US and Canada. We didn't know these collapses were coming or the end was coming, right? Um, so we couldn't protect the workers. We do know that the end of oil and gas is coming. It might be in 5, 10, 15, 20 years, but we know it's coming. So the sooner we can start retraining people, helping them move to uh, newer jobs and the next generation, instead of like offering oil and gas mining courses in universities, start giving options for green energy, uh, you know, courses in universities and colleges. For me personally, I think just transition would be the one policy that could make a huge impact because it has everything under it, right? It looks at the workers, right. it looks at equity and justice, and it looks at transitioning from oil and gas and coal to a greener, more renewable economy. I love that idea of a more holistic approach, and I think that's great. I had so much uh, support and positive feedback that that's kind of what it became about then, was not just about raising issues about climate change, but mm -hmm. about standing up for the voice of the people, the voice of the marginalized, the voice of the poor, and the normal people, not the 1%. And um, that's what I'm doing. And I'm going to keep running. I'm going to keep holding politicians accountable because that's what we have to do. Because, you know, we are running out of time. And it's, you know, like I said, you know, be the change you want to see in the world, right? I, I totally I'm agree. <laughs> be the change, be a voice for people, and be the bridge between science and politics. I love it. That's amazing and inspiring. That was your first interview that you did for yes. the show too. Yeah. That makes me think of like, speaking of firsts, I think the first actual interview we did for this relaunch was Naomi Harlenbachus. Uh, it didn't actually, it didn't air first, but that was like the first time Jason and I got into a zoom mm -hmm. zoom space and talked to somebody for the show and I think her perspective on how research and policy advocating and controlling the narrative when we talk about things like animal research was really interesting. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's something that it, it seems like something scientists don't talk about very much. We try to, like make it seem hidden. And I think that is why there's such a negative response to that, because when scientists aren't talking about this and acknowledging that this is happening and giving the reasons mm -hmm. for why this is necessary, it seems like it's something we're trying to hide. Oh, I totally agree with you. Um, and frankly, it was her perspective on how we can actually change opinions by the way we use our language that was uplifting. Right. So when you combine that with what David Goldstein was saying about polling and the future of our democracy, it's like hopeful is a good word and enabled is another good word here. So we have the mechanism to actually change opinions and it seems to be working. And those two things together make me feel a lot more hopeful about the future of science, about the future of our democracy um, and sort of the future of our planet than I did when we relaunched. Where, you know, so I think it was important that Naomi was one of those first interviews. I think she was the first interview, as you said, that you and I did, even yeah. though she didn't air. Yeah, the there was this whole fusion thing happening. So we decided to bump this other person. I can't remember who it was. Right, but we right. bumped that interview up. Um, oh, I can't remember. It was it was probably inconsequential. Yeah. Fusion is so far away. Right. It's always, it always be so yeah. far no away. name. Right. Kind of like uh, our next toast is yeah. like 20 years away. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> if we're Our next house is being bred in the podcast yeah. uh, uh, labs <laughs> right now. That's right. It's right. Um, anyway, it was just nice to have that perspective right at the outset. It sort of gave me more of a sense that what we're doing here is helpful to the discourse as well. At least I hope so. 
So I love this idea of myth busting. And one of the things that James and I are very passionate about, especially in this podcast, is making sure that the public can understand what it is that scientists do. So we you know, try to help scientists tell their science story a little bit better. Can you give us some examples of some of the myths that you have busted for the public with, uh, you know, surrounding animal research? Because that sounds like uh, a, a place where a lot of people might get tripped up. Yeah, yeah. So one of ones that I hear a lot actually are, well, I don't want, you know, scientists taking my pets and, and just using it for the lab, which is just completely false. So the Animal Welfare Act was actually put in place to prevent that from even happening. So it's illegal to just take pets. Actually, scientists have to breed specific animals for research. So they're specifically bred for research purposes. So pets are always off limits. Um, and that's the reason why that law is in place since 1966. Uh, other, other common myths that I hear is that the researchers don't care about the animals and the animals are not well cared for. People don't quote, care so much about rats and mice uh, specifically, but even from rats and mice up until our companion animals, uh, dogs and cats and, and hamsters, they are all receiving the amount of care and the level of training that you would receive if you can even touch a mouse. So I, when I was in grad school, before I could even touch a mouse and start any kind of surgery, I had to go through so many trainings to just make sure that I knew what I was doing. And then I had someone watch me before I could even start a process and then make sure I was doing it correctly. Um, so those are two of the biggest misconceptions that I hear a lot. And then a lot of people assume that we don't need animal research in general, that you have a lot of non-animal alternatives like organs on a chip, or computer simulations, that those are fine to substitute the level of, of animal research and you don't need animals at all. And that's just not true. I think we should be listening to the scientists more and that's where I come in to try to bridge that knowledge gap. But the fact of the matter is, is that science is just not where it needs to be quite yet. Like for some research questions, maybe you can use an organ on a chip to answer that question. But those alternatives only provide you a sliver of information in time. You can't look at the whole body in general because it's not a whole body. It's just like one organ at one point in time. So that's, you need the entire physiology of an animal to really replicate these complex processes and mechanisms and really understand how basic science even works and then how a disease works. So those are a lot of the things that I keep hearing over and over, both on Capitol Hill and just within the general public. And then another one that was similar in, in kind of sentiment was open heart listening with Dr. Jen yeah. about how to get people with these very opposing ideas and thoughts together and to create a space where they can have these conversations um, with the, where they can view the voice, their different viewpoints and actually listen to each other and have these great conversations mm -hmm. with empathy centered that was a great conversation and that was actually the return to the podcast she had been uh on the show oh, yeah. earlier in in the year and i just kind of like saw one of her drawings on twitter and it's like oh i want to talk to her about her art and like science and art and she came on and talked about communication and empathetic listening i'm like oh the art is great, but this is this is really where the magic is. Mm -hmm. And to kind of see what she's done, you know, from that time going forward, I think she's really on to something. And I, I hope that she has a lot of luck with her workshops that she's starting to do right now, because I think there could be a lot of positive changes coming from us, like, listening mm -hmm. to each other. Do you want to talk a little bit about what compassionate science communication is. The way I believe in and really advocate for is that the audience that we're communicating with is at the center of our communication. At least for myself, they are the people that I'm serving. And so it only makes sense to make sure that they are taken care of. Not only that they're given the information, but also their well-being is taken care of. Their needs and values are understood by the communicators so that we can actually provide value in the form of scientific information. And so 
what I think is extremely important is to listen to the audience with an open mind, not just going in with our own agenda, thinking, oh, I think this is going to be the best for the audience. You know, if my goal is to help them make this very particular decision after a discussion or a chat. I just think that oftentimes, you know, when you're trying to sell something, they can smell it from a mile away. And it, they will be a lot less receptive if that's your mindset. But if you go in and genuinely want to know what they're thinking, what they're feeling, and what are the goals they want to achieve, and then offer them whatever information you have that you think may be beneficial for them. And I use the term offer because I think they have all the rights to not accept it as well. I think that is the role of, of a compassionate science communicator. And hopefully through that interaction, we would leave the audience feeling more empowered. One person will go in the middle of the circle to share. And then once they are done, we will invite people from the circle to mirror them. And all they're supposed to do or all they're responsible of doing is to reflect reflect what you perceive. Again, without adding your own judgment or criticism or, or your own opinions, whether they're right or wrong, all you're doing is, this is what I heard that you said. And through that exercise, basically the presenter felt hurt. And for a lot of them, for the very first time in a very long time, because they are able to share a lot of feelings and thinking that they felt like they have to hide. For example, since the beginning of the pandemic, because we, at this session we focus on the, the topic of vaccines and mandates and stuff like that. And for the people who are in the circle, because they're also kind of stripped of this, this urge or responsibility to debate, to... Um, kind of prove that the other person is right or wrong, they're able to just step back and listen and really hear what the presenter is saying. And through that, really able to kind of empathize with what's being said. And again, because these emotions, these thoughts and these needs are so universal, right? Like we all have fears. We all have the need to protect the people around us and ourselves. We just want to care for the people we, we love and, and, and are important to us. Okay, another one. I was really excited when we had this person on. Dr. Andre Isaacs. Oh, yeah. Because I had been a fan of their TikTok channel and how you can see these clips, glimpse into their lab life um, where everyone, you can see the chemistry between everyone and how well they get along together and then that conversation where they talk about collaborative learning and work environments is just amazing i was so nervous when i was doing that interview because uh, i love his perspective of being a teacher first in the academic setting mm -hmm. and it's something that you know, a lot of people in academics see the teaching aspect sometimes as, as like a bit of a nuisance or something that gets in the way of their research or other work. He takes such a different perspective on that thing, and I really wanted to get that message out there, but I was such a big fan. And the idea that I'm like, I want this message to get out for people to hear it, but I also don't want to mess up was was a tough tough one so maybe you can feel me you can hear me trying to like uh, uh talk over myself a little bit i wonder if you could talk a little bit about about your style of teaching and what you Ooh. can kind of bring to the table where do i start oh my god i do every and anything in my class uh, what don't I do? I'm crazy, first of all. Um, <laughs> I, I like to describe myself as an honorary Gen Zer. <laughs> my students would agree that they've given me that title. But I start off by being genuine, just being real with the students. You have to start off by breaking down that barrier. They inter they've already internalized that professors are on some pedestal 
and are untouchable. And there is this built-in wall that many professors actually help to perpetuate. Sure. You know, that there, I have this knowledge and you are here to hopefully get 5% of it. <laughs> and you must do everything you can to be in my favor so that you can get some of this in knowledge. And you should grovel at my feet while you're at it. <laughs> I, I go into my class and I make it known to my students on the first day that we are collaborators. I don't care how old you are. You are 18, 19, 20. It doesn't matter that I'm twice as old as you all are. But we are collaborators and we're on a journey, right, to get you to learn the material you signed up for <laughs> in this course. And I'm your guide. And if we view each other as collaborators in this effort and me as your guide, then I think it makes it a lot easier for students to, to learn. Um, it creates a more positive environment, a collaborative environment, not just between the students and the professors, but it encourages them to work with each other, too. Because they'll see that you are, you are showing them how to study, how to work through problems. And then they, in turn, can show each other how to do that. And so that's the first thing I do. I walk into the classroom and I break that down. I let them know we're collaborators. Let's work this through. I often say, it's not you against me and the material. It's you and I against the material. And we're going to take it down together. Mm-hmm. So that's something I start off by setting the tone. I also make it very clear that I'm going to be as accessible as I can. I actually give them points if they come to office hours in the first week of, of, mm-hmm. school, of classes, because they need to see that I am approachable, that they can come in, they can ask questions. And that's something they should make a part of a weekly tradition of theirs <laughs> should be to come and see me to talk chemistry I, I throw them to, at the board I'm like okay try that problem like ooh, all right you know and we celebrate or like okay well we're going to come back next week or let's schedule I'm going to see you this time come by this time during office hours and we're going to work through this particular type of problem and so we kind of build that relationship and keep them interested in coming back and learning and working through the problems I also believe in data and, you know, and we hopefully we all do as scientists, but there are a lot of data out there that shows you that the way we teach needs to be revamped. We're not teaching people in the 1950s. That's how many of us learn because our advisors learn from their advisors who learn from their advisors and nothing's changed yeah. <laughs> in the past 70 years of, you know, sure. in terms of how we approach teaching and, and and we have students who live in a generation that, that are quite different from how we learn or even right. our parents learn like 90 percent of my students take notes on an ipad mm-hmm. um you know and and so we have to adapt and so things like you know increasing the types of assignments we give students changing the types of assignments we give students um a lot of data that talks about retention of minorities in in uh, in stem which is a problem how increasing or course structure um, results in like um, higher retention of, of minority students. So different types of assessments, quizzes, homework assignments, uh, more frequent exams instead of the one big midterm that everybody just gets demoralized by, mm-hmm. um, spread it out, right, um, over the semester. Yeah, and so accessibility for officers is one and varied and increased um, types of assignments or types of evaluation is another. Oh, I'm in the same boat. I was so nervous when we interviewed Lee Berger. I was yeah. because I've I've been such a big fan of the sort of outreach approach and the communication approach he's taken to his science for years. And I didn't want to sound like an idiot, and I kind of left that field, so I'm not real up to date on all of the the new discoveries, but I'm up to date enough to hold a, an intelligent conversation, I think, but I was still very nervous that I was going to say something that was totally wrong. I don't think I did, but if I did, he made me feel like I wasn't stupid, and I it was it was an awesome conversation. He was he's really good at what he does. I had this map that had led to the discovery of Sadiba, which had been created from Google Earth, you know, an open access satellite software, and things that I quit exploring literally the day that. We discovered Sadiba when Matthew, my nine-year-old son, said, you know, Dad, I found a fossil. And mm-hmm. because Sadiba had been like the biggest discovery of a career, the, the kind of thing that you dream about when you're sitting in Anthro 101, watching pictures of Lucy and all that, you know, multiple skeletons and all of those things. 
I was sitting there and going, well, what couldn't I do? And I had this great map. And I said, but I don't want to walk over the surface because that's what I'd done back in 2008 to look mm -hmm. for these sites. So I decided to go underground because every one of the pins I had was basically the doorway or gateway into an underground cave system. And those had never been explored, largely because of a preconception that the stuff underground was going to be young and these were still forming caves and that they wouldn't mm. be of value. And so I put together a, uh, brought in an old uh, graduate student of mine that was looking for work, bought a motorcycle to the university, which is a miracle into itself, sent him out there, start <laughs> looking at these underground caves. He came back and he said he wasn't able to go into most of them. So we enlisted these two amateurs, Steve Tucker and Rick Hunter, showed him what we were looking for sent them off with this map. And five weeks after that, I had a, my doorbell ring and Steve Tucker opened up his laptop and showed me pictures after he'd just come out of this cave of what looked like an ancient hominid. But unlike every other situation that we'd seen here in South Africa, it was a mandible and bones just lying on the floor of a cave. That shouldn't happen. And I made a call to National Geographic and said, you know, if you're ever going to believe in me, leaving me right now, which is just, you know, explore a talk for I need money. And they said, <laughs> yes, but don't spend too much. And I then suddenly realized I'd risked the reputation, my own reputation in that on a photograph, you know, from admittedly amateur cavers in a place that, as they described, it was 30 plus meters below the ground. But to get to that, you had to go, you know, 150 meters into a cave and then down through a chute that was 12 meters long. What is that in feet? 40, 40 something feet and uh, narrowed to about seven and a half inches, this vertical pipe. Jeez. Get in. So I knew I was never going to get into there. You know, and, you know, my ego wouldn't fit into that, much less, <laughs> you know, my body. And so I put a Facebook ad out. I remember this Facebook ad, actually. I remember it because I thought, whoa, what is going on? This, <laughs> this seemed really exciting because, you know, you didn't see this kind of stuff on Facebook at this point, at this time, right? <laughs> you didn't see a lot of people saying, hey, I've got a research position open. Um, and so I remember seeing this post. And so please continue. I needed skinny scientists who were willing to risk their lives to go into the, an extreme situation in South Africa four weeks from today. And I'm not going to pay you, but I'll put you up and you'll be on research and it's going to be exciting. I promise I, I well, I almost promise I'll try not to kill you, uh, but I have no idea, <laughs> you know, what's down there and you have to have all these skills. And, and then I had this, you know, explosion of applicants and mm -hmm. um i selected the six most qualified that just happened to be women and uh, a month later we launched the rising star expedition and within a week we realized that we were into this extraordinary thing but part of what we did also which nowadays seems very open i mean 2013 isn't that long ago but there have been paradigm shifts in the way that we do things i think since mm -hmm. then was that you know we opened this up to the world we tweeted it we were on social media we had live cameras there letting everyone see and that was terrifying at the time firstly i didn't know if it was going to fail i didn't know if these things were going to really be important and we did it in front of a million plus people eventually as we as we did that but you know by the end of the week i guess if people have heard this story before we had the we knew we were sitting on what was likely uh, the richest fossil hominid site ever discovered mm -hmm. um with not just one hominid in it but multiple and by the end of that little three and a half week four week expedition we discovered more hominid fossils than in the entire history of the search for human origins in southern africa in the previous hundred years I learned a lot from that. I, I was not nervous. I think that that's what happens when you're not in that field, right? And so you don't understand the impact a person makes. Yeah, yeah. So, so it was just, he's so good at explaining and storytelling. So I just really loved every moment of that. Have you been nervous for any of your interviews, Steffi? I don't know. A little bit nervous. Yeah. Well, you know, if we're talking about the year in totality, I can think of one time Steffi was in front of a microphone and maybe a little nervous and that oh, was no. on Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington DC because I can't 
say this enough times. Steffi was at the White House this year. Steffi. Hi. You recently spoke at a reasonably prestigious location that was trying to increase its impact with the old Science Night bump. So why don't we talk about Dr. Dean's trip to Washington? Yep, that's right. I went to the White House. I can't, be- I can't believe it. It was amazing. I never thought fusion energy would end up in the White House so soon. Um, we've been working really, really hard over the past several decades, and you can go check our back catalog because we did the Fusion News 2020 roundup. But I was there for a White House summit. Um, it was on developing a bold decadal vision for commercial fusion energy. It was organized by the Office of Science and Technology Policy and the Department of Energy event. They convened fusion energy leaders from government, industry, and academia, as well as other stakeholder groups. And this is to both show progress and make sure if we're going to commercialize fusion energy, we're doing it in an inclusive way. Art and science, two things that go great together, but for some reason, there seems to be a disconnect between the two. And over the past year, we've talked to some great psychomers that are also great artists. And while their area of research and artistic medium may differ, What brings them together is a desire to use all of their talents to make science more accessible. So I've always painted my entire life. I have been painting since I was three or four. I don't know. I've just always painted and I've always been pretty good at it. So he tossed a newspaper across the desk at me and he told me to check the classifieds and look and see if I see a job for an artist. And I just sat there and looked wait, what? (laughs) But I got it planted in my head that I couldn't be a scientist and an artist. I started painting space art again and submitting my art to the art show and then taking these art classes while I was doing all of my planetary science stuff. And I, I felt connected again. And I realized that I could do both. And why do I have to separate them? Like that guidance counselor was crazy. Why did he tell me that? Honestly, I could wax poetic about how useful metaphor and symbolism and finding ways, as you said, to, to bring scientific information into a visual form. Not only how useful it is for science communication, but also how much new perspective it can give a scientist or you as a scientist on your work and open up new questions in your research. So, yeah, I'm really pleased to see that the sci art movement is picking up and that you are also at the forefront of it. <laughs> People in general are multifaceted, but we had scientists on the projects who, who on the project who were also creating the music and we had artists on the project who were also really interested in the science and Um, people with lived experience who were contributing poetry or music. So it was really blending and blurring all of the lines between these, you know, these assigned roles that people had on the project. I grew up loving arts. Uh, I've always liked to draw as a kid and my, uh, my mother really picked up on that very quickly. And I actually remember thinking to myself, when I grow up, I'm gonna be an art director. That's what I want to do. That's what what I want to be. In my surroundings, you know, a lot of the careers were primarily scientific careers, right? Mm -hmm. I I didn't know people who are well-established artists and art was seen more so as a hobby. Um, And so even though I grew up in a household that very much encouraged the continuation of practicing my hobby, I just saw a disconnect between me becoming an artist in in my future. You were introduced to science through a mode of art and creativity. And then at one point, all right, forget everything you know about art. (laughs) We're only going to focus on the science. And it's sad because I think, you know, as children, they have such huge potential to be able to do and combine the things that they find interesting. But uh, the way that we work as a society, at least at that time, because at this point I, I do see change. I do see change now, but at least when growing up, I felt that there was that disconnect. Scientists looked very different. Artists looked very different. The moment someone mentions, you know, what does a scientist look, look like to you in your mind? You have this very specific image. And then same thing with what an artist would look like, right? 
we're coming to the end of this uh, year in review, this navel gazer episode, as as Chris has called it. And I feel like we got to shout out Chris a little bit, too, because he uh, he kind of taught me how to podcast. And you definitely didn't hear these moments because it was way back in the early days of the Science Night episode uh, episodes before people you know like listen to it <laughs> and i really have to thank chris for teaching me how to edit podcasts and master podcasts and promote things and stuff like that so yeah a big thank you to chris and cody and all the people over at river power who pushed me to keep going when you know the slow process of building an audience was happening so that was really something that I look back on fondly and appreciate. And of course, I have to thank Steffi and Jason for putting up with me and coming on this Zoom call every other week to talk to me about science. Thanks for the invitation, James. No, that's fine. Yeah, thank you so much. And thanks for um, pinging me when I ghosted you all. Wait, did that? Nice. The first time you asked me. Did that happen? To ghost. Did that happen? Yeah, for sure she did. She yeah. totally ghosted us. Oh, I don't remember that. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it was that long. It's just like, you know, I just followed up. It's like a week <laughs> or two. Yeah. I believe my second email said, listen, I totally understand if you want nothing to do with this. And I'm totally cool <laughs> with just saying I don't want anything to do with this. <laughs> but what do you think? Yeah. It was good. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, usually when you get to the end of an episode like this and we start to get sappy, it's when we say that this has been a fun year but just like all good things they have to come into an end but good news is we got more stuff coming your way so why don't you follow us on social media and we'll move to the outro portion of this episode you can follow me at james underscore read three steffi where can everybody follow you you can follow me on twitter at steffi deem or on instagram at starshipping Jason, where can everybody find you? You can find me on Twitter at OrganJM. You can follow the podcast at our brand new Twitter handle at SciNightPod. And check out our website, SciNight.com. See that fun synergy we got going on there? Where you can find all of our past episodes from this year in review. You can also find the rest of our social media, including our TikTok. Why don't you check us out on TikTok? I got a fun video up there, including Steffi's remix edition. And, of course, our merch. All of that can be found at SciNight.com. We will be back in one week with our final Gen Con special, our visit to the Sun King Brewery in beautiful Indianapolis, Indiana. That is coming up in one week. Until then, have a great night. The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. To find out more about our shows, go to riverpower.xyz. I love it. That's why we kept you on. My favorite moment of the year was this moment right now when we got better at social media, one step at a time. Step by step. <laughs> oh, my God. Ooh, baby. <laughs> that's right. All right, we got five minutes to do an outro. That was awful. You need to cut that out. <laughs> no, that's, that's the singer right there.